Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, so I want to I want to welcome Nancy Rommelman. She's a respected journalist. You've probably read her pieces in the New York Times Magazine, LA Weekly, LA Times, The Oregonian, various other places, and she's also published three books of nonfiction. So you may have read of her some of her things before. Um, and if you have, then you would know that she often will take a news story and then turn it over and examine what's written on the backside, uh, the part that nobody sees. Uh, and I think we can probably expect the same for her fiction. The Bad Mother, uh, which is her first foray into fiction, which she'll be reading from tonight. Um, she says that Hollywood herself is the bad mother of the title, and I'll let her, uh, I'll let her sort of explain more about what we're going to be hearing. Uh, and afterwards, we'll have some questions for her. All of us will, I'm sure, and then she'll sign stuff. Uh, we've got the books for sale at the back counter, and uh, please join me welcoming Nancy Rommelman. <laughs> A little taller. Hi, everyone. Um, it's okay. I think so. Okay. It's fine. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, yes. Um, thank you, first of all, Skylight, for having me, and thank you all for coming. Um, my novel, little short novel, uh, is about homeless kids in Hollywood, teenagers, and um, three girls uh, specifically are squatting in a uh, loft, an empty loft, uh, above the Playmates on Hollywood Boulevard in Wilcox. Um, but there's lots and lots of kids in and out of there. Um, Mary is who I start this chapter with. Mary is um, 14, and she has a three-day-old infant. Mary sat on the window ledge and saw Sophia hanging out on the corner. She had a large thrifty's bag slung over her shoulder and was giving a cigarette to Henry, an older guy with four dots tattooed on his face like compass points. Henry was always trying to stand near Sophia, who talked to him like she talked to everybody, but Mary kept her distance. The old ones like Henry scared her, with their caked on dirt and their infirmities and eyes that looked coated in snot. The drinkers didn't scare her as much. They were sloppy and slow, always drunk or hung over with a black eye or a dislocated shoulder from fighting or falling down. They'd talk at you for hours if you let them, and they usually smelled really bad, like piss and rotten fruit, but they were okay. Roach had told her they're only fighting themselves, but Mary wouldn't go near the junkies if she could help it. Sometimes they wanted to hang or party or said they turned Mary on to some quick cash, but she wouldn't do it. They were skinny and mean, and a lot of them were sick. When Mary first came to Hollywood, just seeing them caused what felt like hot jolts of electricity in her legs, which Mary took as a warning to stay away. But Roach explained they weren't as mean or bad off as they looked. It was just their scam, honed and made into a career. For instance, he said this guy Tommy, he had a real bad limp, like he was missing six inches of one leg. He washed windows in the parking lot of the Mayfair Market in the daytime, smoked crack at night, and had been able to live this way for 10 years. And Roach swore the guy's leg was fine, that it was his gig, that bad leg. But the thing was, after all these years, the guy couldn't stop limping. How do you know? Mary asked Roach. It had been a windy day in early spring. She'd only been in town a month, and they were sitting on a bench in Poinsettia Park. He told me, Roach said. 
lighting Mary's cigarette. Mary took a drag. Maybe he's lying. Maybe something bad really did happen to his leg and he wants to pretend it didn't. Roach retracted his head a little to inspect Mary. How'd you get so cynical so young? <laughs> what? Mary laughed, not wanting to admit she didn't know what cynical meant. Anyway, I'm not so young, I'm 13. Roach squinted and called her a baby and grinned when he said it. She thought he might kiss her then, but he said, let's go. And they smoked a joint as they walked away from Hollywood, down Highland, and so they were on a street called Olympic that Mary had never seen. She asked Roach if this was where the Olympics had been, but he said he'd only been in Hollywood nine months, so he didn't know, but he didn't think so. You've been in Hollywood your whole life, he asked. Mary shook her head. A month. Mostly I was in San Francisco with my mom. She leaned down and picked a dandelion. She died, though. Roach let things be quiet for a minute. That's bad, he said. Yeah. Mary stayed quiet for a minute, too. Want to know how? If you want to tell me. Mary stared at the dandelion and pulled out its threads. She was hit by a car and both legs broke and then they got infected because it's really cold in San Francisco and we were outside a lot then and she couldn't stand the itching and was ripping off the bandages and stuff. Mary bent the dandelion stem and flung it. Her legs got so swollen the doctor said they'd have to amputate them but she died before they could do that. Roach watched Mary wipe the milk sap on her pants. Her hand was as small as a little girl's. He took hold of it and petted the knuckles. At least she knows she's not going to be in any more pain. Mary blinked. Roach watched the sun spark off her dark, blue, cracked crystal eyes. Doll's eyes. I guess, she said. They walked in silence through the residential streets, winding up in front of a duplex with a for-rent sign. Upstairs unit, Roach read. Two bedrooms, two baths, big kitchen, must see. He took three big steps up the sloping lawn to the front door. Roach, don't, Mary said as he depressed the thumb lock. The door opened. He smiled at her and mouthed, come on. She looked down the street one way, then scooted through the door behind him. The small vestibule broke to the right up a semicircular stairwell past a long window that smelled like window cleaner. Roach put his ear to the upstairs door, then knocked so softly. Roach, Mary said. She was so nervous it was making her want to pee. He turned the knob and let them into a living room with shiny wood floors and no furniture. Not bad, not bad, Roach said, taking Mary's hand and leading her through the apartment. The kitchen was narrow and dark, and in the refrigerator was a box of cheese crackers, which Roach grabbed and brought into the back bedroom. He and Mary sat on the new great carpet, eating crackers, surveying the space, and discussing the best place to put the bed. They smoked another joint and lay down, and Roach propped himself on one elbow and kissed Mary. His hip was halfway on hers, and she was extremely excited, more than she'd ever been, and they took off their pants and made love and fell asleep. Mary woke up first. Even though Roach's weight had cut off circulation to her leg, she didn't move. She wanted to stay as they were, imagining they'd just moved in and all the stuff they would buy to make it nice. When Roach woke up, Mary wanted to suggest they stay the rest of the night, but didn't. They got dressed in the dark and walked back to Hollywood, Mary with her arms crossed over her chest because she was cold. Roach gave her a little kiss when they got back to the boulevard and took off someplace with Top Jimmy, and Mary didn't kiss anyone else for a month. Sophia looked up to the loft. From the window, Mary saw her eyes jumping around and wondered where she was in the cycle of speed and recovery. Mary moved her fingers to her mouth, and Sophia nodded. 
She said something to Henry, handed him the thrifty's bag, and slipped around the corner by the shoemakers. Mary watched for two minutes until an LTD slowed and made the turn, and 40 minutes later, Sophia was walking into the loft with a takeout sack from Raleigh's. How'd you get all the way down there? Mary asked, pushing four french fries in her mouth. I had the guy stop, Sophia said. I said my sister just had a baby. I needed to get her some food. <laughs> that must have added to the romance. He'd already got what he needed, Sophia said, pulling the tomato off her cheeseburger and popping it in her mouth. Even paid for the grub. They were sitting amidst a pile of baby stuff from thrifties. There were diapers, hoodie towels, a can that went moo when you turned it over, a tube of ointment. Manolo said, you put this stuff on the belly button and that will help it heal, Sophia said. Manolo was the night manager at the Hollywood Thrifties. He was from Venezuela and made a point of being gentlemanly and attentive to the girls, especially Sophia, who took care of him in the rear of the store. In a dingy room off the men's john with a wall of tiny lockers, one cracked up Nagahide chair, and a sign that read, workers' compensation, know your rights. Manolo and Sophia usually did it standing up, his breath in her ear. If Sophia brought anyone with her, they had to wait outside the store. That was the deal. Manolo said he didn't want kids walking around when there was only one employee on the floor. And Sophia could never show up with a boy. Manolo said it wasn't because he was jealous, but because he knew a boy would steal from him. Manolo knew. He'd seen Sophia steal from him twice. The first time, she'd been wearing a pink top, no bra, and he'd let her get away with a tube of mascara. But the next time, he took her by the arm just before she got to the front door. What, she said, jerking away as he pulled her toward the back of the store. She was taller than he was. You'll be quiet. But these are my sunglasses, she said, and realized the moment she did what an idiot she was, and felt Manolo's grip become less intense, and saw he was trying not to smile. When they got to the back room, he sat down in the chair and made her stand in front of him. He told her he was going to call the police, but she said, please don't. He asked if she was sorry, and she looked at her feet and nodded and handed him the glasses. He laid them on his lap and told her she could have them if she wanted. She looked up and saw he was nervous. She got on her knees and lay her hand on the glasses and felt his erection, then began to open his fly, but he said, no, pull up your shirt. He stroked himself as he stared at her tits. To him, they were perfect, just full, with clean-rimmed nipples the color of pomegranates. He grabbed Sophia's hand, and as soon as she touched him, he came. Manolo felt his face get hot and quickly went into the men's room for some paper towels to wipe himself. He'd made stains on his tan work trousers and quickly asked God that his wife wouldn't recognize them for what they were. She, who always scrubbed every particle of dirt. A laundry fool, he thought, but a good wife. He tucked in his shirt and went out to Sophia, but she and the glasses were gone. Sophia came back about once a week after that, every time she needed something substantial. She wasn't going to do it just for lip gloss, but she liked being with Manolo. He was quick and gentle, and hearing his accent was like a little vacation. She could tell he was falling for her. One time, he gave her a pendant from the jewelry counter, a gold heart with a tiny amethyst in the center that Sophia hadn't really liked. She'd asked if she could trade it for a carton of cigarettes, but when she saw the hurt in Manolo's eyes, she laughed and said she was kidding, and held up her dark hair so he could clasp it on her, which he did, still pouting but loving the way the hair curled down the nape of her neck. And afterwards, they had intercourse for the first time, Manolo panting in Spanish as he came. Sophia had been eager to go to the thrifties. She wanted to surprise Mary with bags and bags of baby stuff, but realized when she got there, the speed had about worn off.
standing on the corner of Sunset and Gower, with the sun setting and the wind making her sweat freeze to her skin. She looked toward the brightly lit store and thought she shouldn't go in. She was starting to white out, and her legs were doing the sewing machine thing. She pressed her diaphragm to the concrete bus bench and leaned over until she caught her breath. Inside Thrifty's, the air was frigid and moving. Sophia's teeth began to chatter, and she realized she had B.O. and hugged herself to keep her armpits covered. She didn't see Manolo at the registers, so walked straight to the deodorant aisle and was trying to decide which one to use when she heard his voice. He was behind the film counter, counting out change for a lady. Sophia stared at him, thinking, I'll only stay if he sees me in the next minute. She was still looking his way when she reached for a stick deodorant and knocked over the row. Manolo looked up in manager concern and indicated he'd be with her in a minute. She was picking deodorants off the floor when he came up to her, and before he could ask, she began telling him she didn't need anything for herself but for the baby. Manolo nodded seriously, saying he had three kids, and if he didn't know what a baby needed, nobody did. Sophia stayed one step behind as he pushed a shopping cart and tossed in diapers and bottles and tubes, and she thought, as he explained about the ointment for the cord and the culo, what a good father he was. She began to cry. She never wanted to leave the thrifties. She wanted to be Manolo's wife and have everything she needed. Manolo dropped the diaper rash cream in the cart and asked, Linda, why do you cry? And put his hand on Sophia's cheek. You're hot. You're sick. Sophia shook her head. She couldn't tell him the truth, that she hadn't slept in two days, that she was sick, yes, but not with anything he could fix. She let Manolo give her a box of tissues and walk through the aisles behind him until the cart was half full. She wanted to have sex with him, but he said, get these to the baby, they are famously impatient, and let Sophia out the side door and into an alley, where she luckily ran into Top Jimmy and this big alcoholic Indian they called Chief, and Sophia traded Jimmy a box of baby wipes for two bumps to get her going again. Thank you. Someone's got a question. <laughs> you have tissues? I don't. <laughs> so, your previous writing experiences as a journalist, and I'm just curious whether you, um, when you're working on a story for a journalism piece, whether you sort of have encountered details of people who you've sort of thought fiction, not nonfiction, or whether, you know, how you sort of came to the decision to write fiction and whether it's linked at all to writing. You know, it's funny. Journalism is sort of, you know, um, shoe leather. And you're getting out there and you're meeting and you're, you're making notes. And certainly sometimes these people you can just, if you wanted to, you could extrapolate and take their lives over here because they're fascinating to you. But you really stay mired in the truth. Um, fiction for me really doesn't grow out of the subjects I write about. It grows out of little things that I see, and then you start making the story. So um, people have asked if, you know, these kids came from stories I'd written, and they, and they really hadn't. I did, years ago when my daughter was a baby, there's a character in the book named Miralee, and I did when my daughter was a baby before I was writing at all. Um, I met a girl sort of like Miralee, but then many years later when I was working on this, she sort of came back into my mind and I used her a little um, for the character of Merely. When you started out, when you say back when you weren't writing at all, so at some point you, you started writing, was it a crossroads for you? I mean, a, a fork? Was it like fiction or nonfiction? Was it that decision at the time? 
Oh, that's an interesting question because when I started writing, I started actually writing, I started working as a journalist and writing fiction at the same time. And um, really, there was nothing to do with the fiction. I was writing short stories. What do you do with them? Like you publish one in a magazine somewhere, maybe. And I did go for a couple of years thinking, what am I going to do? But I went, I did the journalism, which I just adore. Um, but the fiction still kind of crops up. So I want to do both. Yeah, I mean, every writer here does that, right? Yeah. Mickey Kaus, hello. So the setting is a long way from Portland, but of course, spent a lot of time in Hollywood. Did you have to come back and kind of update your? No, I started writing this book when I was here um, and then finished it when I was up there. And uh, I will tell you what is not a secret. Um, Hollywood's a much better writing town than Portland is. Um, there are just, it, it, there are endless stories here. There's just, not just opportunities, you know, journalistically and venues and people from other parts of the world wanting things from Hollywood, but just the people here because everybody comes here because something's going to happen. And, you know, whatever stage you hit them at, whether it's at the beginning with that hope or when they're just um, there's just always things to write about. Whereas Portland people are very practical and they're not as interesting to write about. <laughs> they have they have achievable dreams. So <laughs> is there a parallel culture though in Portland to you know to, to what you write about? No, uh, no, not really. Um, I mean, you do, I mean, you have just as many delusional people up there, for sure, but it's not as grand. The delusions are not as grand. And you still have something sort of of this kind of new agey hippie stuff going on there, which just like is shocking, that, but it continues. And I, and I did actually do a story recently about a little religious cult up there that was sort of kind of akin to something that might have happened in Hollywood. Yes. Hello, Paul. Um, you said you started writing it when you the since dinosaurs roamed the earth <laughs> I, I started writing it and then I, I put it away for a long time and then I brought it back out so I, I don't really know a long time <laughs> what, what else is hiding that's ready to come out what other books yeah. <laughs> I paid him to say that now um, I do I am putting together a book of um, of Los Angeles journalism, and that hopefully will be out by the end of the year, and I'm, I'm kind of excited about that, to put it together in the right kind of order so it, it says more, more than the sum of its parts. And I've been working on a, uh, a nonfiction book for about two years about a woman who um, threw her two children off a bridge in Portland, Oregon, uh, one of whom drowned. Uh, it's a fascinating story that was really not handled well in the press. and. Um, it's, it's sort of an ongoing story. So I've been working on that. That's called To the Bridge. I don't know when that will be finished. Maybe in a couple of years. It takes people a while to um, come and talk to me, but they're coming. So. so you like easy. Yeah, easy things, yes. <laughs> Lemon pie. <Yeah. laughs> so 
Yep. Maybe you answered this already, but because you said one character was based on someone real, so every other character and everything in here is completely from your imagination. Everything is from my imagination. And why do you have an insight into homeless teenagers? I don't know. Um, I know, I think, you know, it's interesting because I've had a couple people read this book, two of whom were homeless. One is a teenager in the Northwest, and one recently here in Venice. And I was not, I mean, these are friends of mine. I wasn't giving them to a book like, hey, tell me, I got this right. Um, but they came to me and said, you got this right, except for one thing. He's like, well, if the guy had a knife, the cops would have shot him. But, um, but I said, I think the only reason one would know that is that you just have to, you look at your character, where is she? She's standing here now. What would she do? Okay, she'd go here. And then, okay, if she met this guy, you just try to tell the truth. You try to tell the truth. And it, it seemed to have worked. So, but I don't have any, I've never worked with homeless teenagers. I've never been homeless. So, I didn't do research. So. I feel like you really, I mean, just hearing you read it, I haven't read it yet, but just hearing what you did read, I mean, I have my own romantic sort of feelings about Hollywood, and it, it, it was, I was pretty moved by how much I felt like you captured that in the, I'm not asking a question, I'm just telling you. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know, there was something in everything, um, the way you wrote it, that I really felt like, God, she is, I mean, Hollywood seems like the main character. I think Hollywood is the main character in the book, yes. Yeah. Did you feel strange as a mother creating all of these uh, very troubled and putting them in all these situations No, but, uh, and, I, and I knew my daughter is actually in, she calls herself the bad daughter because she hasn't read it yet. Um, she, she's about halfway through. Um, no, I didn't, but I, it's an interesting question because I did get a review and um, up in Oregon and um, the reviewer was very upset that I had put these kids in this posi these position. It really upset her. Like, she was mad at me <laughs> that, I didn't, um, that I didn't take better care of them. She felt I should have taken better care of them. And I, I thought it was an interesting response. It's like, okay, it shows that she actually, she cared about them. And she thought I was kind of setting them up to abuse them. I, I, I wasn't, but I could see why. I mean, from her POV. She did take care of her. Sorry? The character better. He's giving her life. Manolo? Manolo. He was feeding her. I will say, I believe that on nearly every page of this book, these kids are trying to take care of each other. Now they have very few tools. They don't have any money. They have their bodies. Maybe they've got a joint and they've got some baby wipes or I can get you here. They are trying very hard to take care of each other with what tools they have. When I was reading it, I was sad to have it end. I wanted it to keep going. I mean, I was just starting to get in. You know, was there more? Or did you just... I had thought, I think the book ended, but I've had a bunch of people ask me this question, so I've been sitting around thinking about some of these characters, and I'm not going to say where I see some of them because that's up to you guys. But uh, I do, you know, some of them have a future, and 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 some of them sadly do not. And will I write it? I don't. I don't know yet. I don't know. Yes. Uh, I'm curious. I love the cover, and I'm wondering whether you had any say in it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I actually, uh, I was looking at a. Um, 
I knew I wanted a picture of Hollywood, and I went and looked at um, uh, the Hollywood subway line, and just um, showed my, you know, publisher like this is what I'm thinking, and then she didn't use that, but she kind of drew it herself, actually physically drew it, and then she says I told her to add this asphalt. I never did, but she insists I did, okay? Um, and yeah, she just put it together, which is really nice, because I we have authors here, and I hear about just these horrible fights that people have to get a cover that is not hideously embarrassing. So I, I really like the cover well, a lot. True. Right, right, right. Thanks. <laughs> Have you been back to Hollywood or been to Hollywood on this trip? I got here this morning, so um, I did. I spent half the day in the farmers market just watching people, and um, I will be back down um, two more times for the book uh, in the coming months for different whatever. So. I'm glad to be here. How's the market Great. A little cold, but great. I just like to sit there and people watch. So. I knew someone was going to ask that. Um, I, miss, I miss the people in Los Angeles that I know and the ones I don't know. And I miss places. And I miss the stories a lot. I really, it's, there's a paucity of stories up. Not even, not just venues for which to tell them in Portland, but just... You just don't have the depth of stories up there. But I do not miss the sun, and I do not miss the traffic. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I like the seasons. So. Okay. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. It's great to see you. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.